I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. Hi, everybody. We're here with Stephanie Felsberger, who's a PhD student in gender studies at Cambridge University. And we're going to be talking to her about her research on surveillance capitalism, data commodification, and the role of race, gender, and colonialization in these discussions. So thanks so much for being here, Stephanie. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited to have the, have the chat. Um, so maybe we could just start by you telling us a little bit about like your background, uh, what your PhD research is on, and what got you interested in surveillance capitalism and data. Yes, that sounds great. So um, my background is quite diverse. I've been jumping around a lot in academia and different topics. So I uh, studied Arabic studies and political science way back in uh, Austria when I did my, my undergrad. Um, and then I worked in Egypt for about five years at a center that was looking at how global knowledge flows are being controlled by different regimes and like, like property regimes, like intellectual property and copyright. And I got to do a lot of research on surveillance and uh, censorship. Um, and that's really, I mean, I've been interested in these things before and that was like a really great opportunity to really explore them in a in like an academic setting and yeah all the things that i found out there really really kind of cemented my interest in in surveillance and data and especially the economic side of it because i think initially i was more interested in state surveillance and power i read a lot of Foucault, panoptica and all of these uh, these things and but the center was really focused also on the intersection with economic inequality um, and that kind of shifted my my attention also to to look at data commodification and the economic side of, of things as well. So I'm looking at menstruation tracking applications um, and women who use them in Egypt and in Austria. And I'm very curious. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what how people understand and conceptualize the data, what relationship they have to the, the data that they send and to into the void ether that then gets commodified and how they understand the, the relationship between the knowledge that is produced and their bodies because um, I mean the central tenet of these apps is that they they tell you give us all your data and we'll tell you how your body works um, and so it kind of connects the the knowledge production with the commodification of data and I'm really interested in that intersection and um, yeah, I feel like a lot of the literature on surveillance or capitalism, or maybe not surveillance, but surveillance capitalism uh, is very focused on companies and the tech industry. And it doesn't give a lot of space to what people do in this. Um, so I really wanted to kind of center that in my, in my research. So I'm going to do a list, a different, group discussions, interviews, and also some participant observation to see how people interact with their phones and how they use them and things like that. Um, yeah, the, the literature is also extremely heavily focused on um, English speaking countries. And I mean, there's this dynamic to kind of only produce theory by looking 
um, at the global north and then kind of not really addressing that but just like oh yeah this is this is kind of like the dynamic that you see in in academia and then the rest is kind of and then case studies get developed by applying that theory outside outside global north context but i yeah and there's some really great books about this like provincializing europe is a really really cool uh book that kind of talks about how we also need to do specificity for you know research in, in the global north so i'm kind of trying to do that by by looking at egypt and austria and uh i think it'll be difficult uh, interesting to see how what the differences are in how people understand what options they have uh, when they use the apps um, and how they think about what will happen to their data. And because it's a very different context in terms of data protection, um, general protection for rights or understanding of like, you know, what, what options you have or, and also you're just so removed from some of the apps um, because I mean, some of the apps are developed in Europe, some of the apps are developed in the US, um, the ones that are quite popular. Uh, so I'm really curious to ex explore all of that. Yeah, one of the things that I found like really interesting in, in your work is how you, you know, we think about like our data being commodified, but we don't necessarily think of it as labor, right? like we don't think about like uploading a photo as labor. And one of the, the um, comparisons you drew was on how like historically housework that women have done has not been considered labor because it's unpaid, because it's done by women. Um, and then, you know, comparing that to this, this case study that you've, you're, you're focusing on, which is like um, the menstruation tracking act, um, that's also not considered labor. Um, but it seems like such a vital question, like how, like how things become commodified or like become considered legitimate labor that you should be compensated for. So um, maybe you could talk a bit about like, how did you first stumble upon this idea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I was really excited when I, when I came across, uh, across these theories uh, that look at data production as, as work. Because yeah, like I said before, one of the big, one of the big things I always struggled with was kind of finding a better way to frame the power dynamics between tech producers and users, because it seems like once you think of people as like just users of technology, there isn't much, there aren't many options. You can like use it or not. And that's how a lot of, oh, you're like, you're a consumer, so you can use it or you can't use it. But sometimes it's not really a choice of whether you can use Google or Facebook because they're so pervasive that you don't have another option. Um, so I really wanted to kind of find a better way of thinking about this for myself, but also just maybe having a better way of framing it so that we maybe feel like we have, as users, have more of a say or, you know, feel, feel like we can, we can make more claims to the data and um, yeah, so I found this, uh, this is like a, this is like a concept that comes out of media studies. Um, Christian Fuchs is like one of the, um, the core people that has like, yeah, developed, developed this. Kylie Jarrett is also another, um, another academic who has written about this and her book, uh, Feminism, Labor and Digital Media, The Digital Housewife, 
uh, has been quite influential in my in my thinking about this. And um, so this comes out of they use a lot of Marxist feminist literature on housework and they draw parallels with how housework was initially not theorized as work um, because it's not waged and Marx was really focused on, on waged labor. And there's some parallels in how this could be considered work, but you know, it doesn't, it's not, it's difficult to perceive it as being work. Uh, it's kind of done during spare time. Uh, quotation marks for spare time because housework is like a full-time job as well um, and it's it's kind of also driven by some immaterial values because you know if you're doing housework you're taking care of your family so there's there's like some like social pressures to do that kind of work but also you're receiving some rewards from doing that work because you know it is nice things to do things for people and then when you're on the internet for example in their literature they argue um if you're creating content and then you receive all these likes that's also rewarding in some sense um and then they also point to the fact that women's labor and online labor in or domestic labor in general is really undervalued and underpaid um yeah i mean i i have some like theoretical um framing issues with it a bit because um, I'm also working with social reproduction theory and they, in that, the more you engage with like the literature, Marxist feminist literature and housework, the more you also notice uh, their blind spots. Um, because obviously not all women are only engaged in like domestic like housework, but a lot of women, especially women of color, do domestic work and they are engaged in work. and. So in a lot of the literature on housework, they're like, yeah, you need to pay women for this labor and then all problems will be solved. I'm really, really reducing it drastically, the arguments here. <laughs> uh, and you have these criticisms saying like, well, a lot of women do domestic work and they are being paid and it's not really solving, it's not really solving anything. So it's a very like contested, um, it's also very contested like literature and framework, but I'm, it's still very interesting to think through what what it would mean to think of data production as work before um i kind of like delved a bit into um thinking about data through lenses of ownership and property um but yeah i found i, f I found that literature around property and intellectual property and ownership really really troubling and as well you know uh, the 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 colonial connections and the coloniality of like property and like how like yeah like the 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 dynamics of of intellectual property and how they're used and who they benefit always end up benefiting the ones that are already way more powerful so i thought it was a very kind of troubling pathway to go down and that's why to me like exploring it through a lens of like maybe work was a bit more rewarding uh or it could be more rewarding but I mean, yeah, I'm not sure if it's going to solve uh, the problem because if you look at the history of labor exploitation, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> I yeah. don't know if we're going to solve the problems of data commodification during looking at it through labor. I'm like, hmm. but it is still such an interesting, like, different way of looking at it because, like, especially thinking of of 
one of the solutions that has been put forward to like solving this like extraction of data is like if you own your data. So like I think a couple mm -hmm. of companies are trial running, like paying you for your data. But then that is such a passive framing. So it's almost it is it does make you feel a bit like, you know, you're just this like I forget what the social dilemma called it, that you're just this like data voodoo doll and then your data just exists, right? What that's not actually true is that like even the data that like Facebook is collecting about you, you are producing through like action by clicking on things, by doing things. And, and you, it, your, your data isn't just there for, you know, people to pick up. Um, so it does seem like quite, quite a different, different way of thinking about it with different implications. Even yeah, I think it's also <laughs> So yeah, I think it's 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 very uh, it's very interesting because also that that uh, solution that you can sell your data and make money for it. What really troubles me with that is that it is just another market-based solution that I don't think is going to solve the issue. It's and it's also it's really going to like I think it's going to end up also creating a situation in which some people's data is going to be way more valuable and they're gonna have more time and more access to being able to sell their data, more, um, more, uh, more, like get more money out of that data. So I think it's just gonna reinforce inequalities. And I don't know, I, in my opinion, the point of this is kind of to try and like, you know, uh, work against creating inequalities. And I think the market-based solutions are just going to like reinforce those um yeah and yeah it creates also a lot of other interesting questions in terms of like how would that look like practically um how could you own your data like how yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting questions on that it works also in terms of like intellectual property like none of that law or like le legally i think data can't really be protected by intellectual property um, yeah, there's a lot of, that's a whole, that's a whole really, really interesting, uh, like hole to like fall into. Yeah. It's so it's interesting how, how similar, like some of the dynamics are. These are questions we've been wrestling with for, um, even predating these companies. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about this framework is that like a lot of the critique or the framing around like how social media in particular is like negatively impacting democracy is framed in is as this like quote unquote the attention economy so like mm -hmm. we saw that um uh this past week with the um like u.s congress hearings with um like the tech executives where they were just asking like is your are your platforms designed to be addictive um, that was also uh, the framing that came up in the social media documentary, which was just like, we are kind of the, the implicit criticism was like, we are spending more and more time on our phones and that's like taking our attention. And in some sense, the argument is almost like it's eroding our free will because we're more and more mm -hmm. like exposed to nudges, but like your framing, I think is just so, so interesting because it doesn't necessarily frame it in terms of like, oh, wow, these women are giving up so much attention when they're using these like menstrual, menstrual tracking apps. But um, the problem is that they're giving up knowledge and somebody else is owning that knowledge and then using that like 
ownership of that knowledge to exert power over them. Um, so I wonder like, like how does that framing kind of change what you see as the problems? And, and it seems like there's like a lot of historical like antecedents for this um, in, in terms of like how women's bodies have historically been controlled. So like, how are you linking that um, framework? Yeah, so I think um, there's a very um, simple answer also why um, I'm not that worried about people being addicted to their period tracking apps because I think <laughs> generally in like the quantified, like this is part of like, you know, the quantified self and like all these like self-tracking apps, like the Fitbits and, and things like that. And it's interesting that these apps, they more struggle with people not using them or people who try to use them they just find themselves not using them as much as they want to so um like that's like a lot of like people who do like fitbits and self-tracking like they lose interest over time so that was like one practical reason for why this isn't so much uh part of my framing um but the other aspect of why i'm really interested in in these like knowledge production um aspects of it is but because on one hand, like it's this dynamic that I mentioned before, where these apps, that's kind of the selling point of these apps. It's like, you give us all your data and then we will tell you how your body works. And we are the only ones who can tell you. And they're kind of framing themselves as like this. We are the most accurate source of knowledge over your bodies. Uh, Deborah Lupton writes about this a lot. Um, and yeah, that I find that very, very fascinating. It's this whole argument of like, oh yeah, Google knows you better than yourself because the apps are there when no one else is watching. I'm using air quotation marks. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm very interested in that in that um, intersection of like the knowledge production claims that these apps put forward um, and kind of the the histories of these and like what hierarchies of knowledge production like they tap they tap into in this in this framing. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a very long history of um and like the book that i'm kind of relying on there a bit is uh Silvia federici's caliban and the witch which is like a uh like one of the classics that looks at um like the gender dimension of of capitalism uh it's also part of like social reproduction theory just to like frame it for people who are interested to look it up and in her book she kind of talks about how and uh, during the witch hunts, women's knowledge over reproduction was kind of through the witch hunts penalized and taken out of their hands and then put uh, in like the hands of, you know, white cis hetero men who then did a lot of horrible things uh, with that power. And for her, this is a way of how mm, the nuclear family was institutionalized and and then that kind of relates us back to how um, unwaged, how women's on waged unpaid labor um was kind of cemented as like you know this is housework this is your role and um like federici argues that this is kind of um that's like the the aspect of of capitalism and that like the gender aspect of capitalism that kind of marx doesn't look at although he gets really close to looking at it if you look at his chapter on social reproduction uh, he like almost gets it but then he's just like oh women what are those <laughs> um <laughs> so, uh, so that's kind of that's one aspect of of where i'm interested in it and then the other is also 
if we're looking at uh, how um, coloniality is defined, um, that's like definition by Maldonado Torres, and he looks at it as like a how the long-standing patterns of power that emerged as a result of colonialism define culture, labor, and I'm, I'm quoting this partially, uh, into subjective relations and knowledge production way beyond just like resource extraction. Because a lot of literature on colonialism is always focused on labor and research, resource extraction and captive markets. But I think the, the knowledge production part and the you know, the intersection between power and knowledge and uh, cognition and uh, Western epistemologies also plays a huge part in this. So that's also why I'm, I'm quite interested in, yeah, like keeping that focus also on, on knowledge production and the hierarchies that are involved here. Yeah, so do you see um, like implications beyond just like the apps that you're looking at? Just because I'm thinking like, I know Amazon's making a move into like the healthcare market. Um, like Google obviously has information about our health. So like, how do you see the wider implications for like this, this one aspect of, of like data commodification, I guess, particularly in terms of health, but maybe, maybe in other ways? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it's, it's very, it's very, it's a very, very, very fast growing uh, market, um, especially women's health app, apps are one of the, I think the fastest of growing markets. And um, that's kind of, that's also another reason why I really wanted to look at it because it seems like there's just so much money to be made with this. Uh, yeah, there's a woman who did research on, well, she, she tried to hide her pregnancy from online advertisers because, and then she kind of tried to put some money on this and she found out, and that research was done in, um, I think 2014. So maybe the numbers have changed by now, but so she kind of found out that in the US, um, advertisers value pregnant women at $1.50, like to like advertise uh, towards them. And then average customers are only worth 10 cents. And that kind of wow, yeah, it's crazy. Pregnant women um, are in demand. They are. They really <laughs> are. Um, and it's because, like, in the the minds of like online advertisers, um, pregnant women will. Well, there's some gender dynamics to this because they don't think about uh, dads that much. But so pregnant women will change their shopping habits once they have a child, and then um because like i you know all the dynamics change so they think that if you can kind of get in there early on and then kind of make yourself part of these new shopping habits you're kind of set for a really long time and I, that's why they think it's so much more valuable to like advertise to pregnant women and yeah it's really interesting i've told this to a bunch of people and and then they kind of, they tested it out they just texted somebody on facebook saying like oh i have a baby and then for the next four days all their advertisements were just about baby stuff and wow. so it's that kind of <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah online yeah. advertisements gotten quite quite uh uh uncanny but uh yeah that it's very that is very 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 um yeah interesting so um that's kind of why i'm i thought it would be very interesting to look at, at this sector because it is such a highly valued uh 
target market for online advertisers and it's such a fast growing sector just health and like the whole self-tracking sector itself i mean everything from fitbit to smart period cups that tell you oh how full God. the cup is and then you have to change i don't know if that actually got and there's definitely a kickstarter that i saw on that um but yeah it's just there's a lot of technical solutions to a lot of problems that are being uh, pushed that then gather a lot of data um, that I find, yeah, a, a very interesting site to like study. So I guess one of the questions then that comes to mind for me is like, we're thinking a lot about private companies who are tracking our like personal data and then they're like commodifying it in, in terms of use for advertisers. Um, or, or, th- or like even selling, you know, selling our data to insurance companies. But it, it's very, you know, it, it is with it, it's embedded in the economy. So I'm wondering, like, do you see a link or is there a link between like corporations that collect this data and like the state and governments? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's probably several. I mean, like just in terms of the surveillance and the control aspect that states are interested in. I mean, today that kind of really just, it can only work with the help of these private companies, right? I mean, we've, we've touched upon that before because they have access to so much data. And I don't know if you saw recently, I think just a few days ago, so the US military uh, bought a lot of data from a, a popular like, app for Muslims. I think it's called Muslim Pro app. Uh, it's like a prayer and Quran app. And yeah, they just, it's a very, very popular app. So they've downloaded a lot of information or uh, bought a lot of information from that. And um, yeah, it's like location information, right? Yeah. Um, I think there's also, I'm looking at the article, there's a, a dating, a Muslim dating app, yeah, a popular Craigslist yeah. app. I mean, it's just, I mean, it, it's not surprising to be honest. It's kind of surprising if you haven't thought of it, but obviously if they got data from, whatever, AT&T and Google, they're going to try and get data from everywhere now because, I mean, that's probably way easier than trying to force companies to get access. It's just to like buy buy the data because there is so much floating around being able to just be purchased. Um, Yeah, I think it's interesting because if you think about surveillance before everything was communicated online so heavily, governments kind of had to build up their own separate infrastructure for it and then today yeah uh, you really have to I don't know either force companies to like work with them but I guess um, a lot of companies are also kind of trying to at least pretend that they care about privacy Mm -hmm. Um, and then which makes it a bit more tricky and then you also have a little bit of encryption um, like for example on iPhones or, or WhatsApp so yeah I could see how buying buying data is just like the the easier way out which is quite yeah, yeah quite scary yeah it's so interesting um, the paper that you sent me that you wrote Colonial Cables which I should say for our listeners we will link in the um, show notes um, but it was just so fascinating because you situated this history of surveillance capitalism within the wider sort of history of colonialization, which I think uh, Shoshana Zubak's book, which coined the term surveillance capitalism, 
doesn't quite do. Um, so I was wondering, like, just for our listeners, like, if you could talk a little bit about um, specifically, like, how you think the history of colonialization and expanding out um, this idea of how we think about surveillance capitalism to, to you know, to both historically and geographically, um, like, helps contextualize or situate it in a different way. Uh, yeah, so the paper, uh, what it does, it kind of looks at the role of sur- companies that sell surveillance technology in the Middle East, and it kind of also traces back how we think about surveillance, maybe not surveillance capitalism specifically, uh, at least not in the in the paper, um, how we think about surveillance and how um, there it is important to also think about the history of colonialization and to think about colonialism and race and gender and inequalities and how we think about surveillance because yeah it's really important to trace where things come from it's really simple to say but nothing comes from nowhere but the way that surveillance um is talked about very often is very dehistoricized which is strange because it does talk about the panopticon and the panopticon and Foucault's uh concept of it is really central in it but also how he frames the panopticon kind of misses out on the colonial history of of the panopticon and its its aspects because um so in his book uh, or in 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 the book uh and in the concept how how he frames it um the panopticon is this uh, symbol or metaphor for how power works in europe and how it shifts from punitive to um trying to impact um, our own actions like on the inside. So it's like a more subtle way of power, but of, of how power works. But at the same time, uh, European countries were very much involved in still employing these punitive uh, public punishments uh, in different like colon- colonial settings. So it's really important to keep that history in mind and how we think about uh, colonialism and uh, sorry, how we think about um, surveillance. And it's the same also just in how we think about capitalism itself because capitalism itself also emerged in conjunction with colonialism, like the resources and the human labor that were so violently and cruelly taken really fueled the the possibility for capitalism as an economic system to emerge and yeah this is something that very that definitely Shoshana Zuboff does not really theorize in her book that way um she uses it more as a metaphor for trying to get people to think about how bad surveillance capitalism and data commodification is uh so that's kind of why um yeah I think it's it's important to like properly understand where it comes from so that we have a we also know how to kind of mobilize against it and like how we can resist and carve out space for ourselves yeah it's such like an interesting question particularly since like the conversations around tech generally happen within a quote-unquote like western context either in like the u.s or europe in which we're thinking about like u.s-owned companies and what they do in the u.s or u.s-owned companies and what they do in europe um and the conversation around like um, what tech is doing in other countries and how it's impacting them is generally framed in terms of a like 
oh, such and such tech company is like working in X authoritarian country and X authoritarian state wants them to do something that's going to harm the citizen and like, will the tech company do it? And if they don't, do they risk being like pushed out of the country by this authoritarian leader? But if they do do it, are they complicit? Um, so I'm thinking about a lot about like when Google tried to like run search in China, they were very much like framed as the like the freedom company in this authoritarian context. Um, so do you think like like that's the, especially considering the like history of colonialization, do you think that's like an accurate like characterization of like private companies, especially private tech companies attitudes towards rights violations in these in these contexts? And like, is that an accurate reflection of the power dynamic between like private companies and states? Uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I think it's a very limited view on these power dynamics. First, um, it's also really strange that this is kind of the way that it's talked about is very like, oh, this only happens in authoritarian states, but this is very much a problem also. I think maybe now today we talk about this in the European context or US context as well, but more in terms of like information and fake news and control over, over the media. But I mean, this is an issue in every context, right? Like the question of what role do these private companies have in mediating free speech and in mediating access to information and in you know commodifying data and having access to all of these things so i mean that's a that's a very big big a general general um challenge that we're facing in different in different countries and um it's just also i think in terms of the power dynamics as they play out in other countries it's very often you will have i mean these companies are huge multinational companies and I think they have also huge amounts of power and I think China is maybe a specific uh, example um, I mean I'm, I'm not an expert so I, I can't really like very expertly speak to these uh, dynamics in China but I feel like the the problem is that it's framed as a well, Google just wants to provide access to information, but they have to comply with censorship. And then it's like, oh no, poor Google, but really Google wants access to this market and they're willing to really, yeah, I don't know. They're really willing to, I want to say compromise in like quotation marks, but for them, it's more about, you know, the economic gains that they're having and not, it's not really about providing access to, to information. Um, and then I think what's also interesting is that very often in this portrayal, we mostly think of European, actually, no, we mostly think of US companies. There's not that many European companies uh, involved um, that do this. But if we think about some other markets in, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa or also in Egypt, Chinese companies play a huge, 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 huge role um, in pro like selling um, like the phones and all of that. And then there's a very different, uh, there's a very different dynamic at play as well um, that, we, that we need to think about. Yeah, one of the other things that I also thought was striking about like your Colonial Cables article is like, there's this idea, particularly like in Europe and the US that like, I think it was, who was it? The Google CEO, Eric Schmidt said like, well, why do you care about data collection if you have nothing to hide? 
And like implied in that is like, why do you care about the state's data collection if you don't live in an authoritarian country? Um, and that's something that kind of, you know, like stifles or, you know, it sort of permeates throughout the debate. And, and, and I see that when I talk to my friends in the US, yes. here in the UK, where you're like, you know, that they're collecting their data and, and, and people will say, whatever, I don't care. Like, I don't care about my privacy. Like, I have nothing really quite interesting to hide. And so one of the things that I thought was so interesting about your, your paper is um, one of the arguments that you highlighted is not that, you know, I mean, one argument could be like, you know, any state can, can, can become authoritarian and any, any, there's a lot of context in which like knowledge over you can, can turn into abusive power. But one of the things that you highlighted was that, you know, European and US companies will sell surveillance data to authoritarian countries who will then turn around and use that, like those surveillance tools against European and American citizens. Um, yeah, I, that dynamic is, is very prevalent. So I'll, I'll first talk a bit about like concrete, like the examples, but then uh, maybe I can go a bit more into detail about why this dynamic is important and why it's also important about further beyond than just like, oh, wait, this also matters to us and that us in quotation marks is now is the global north. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so in that paper, um, I've, I've looked at um, a few surveillance technology companies. Um, there's a few big ones, let's, let's drop some names. Um, uh, there's Hacking Team and then there's Finn Fisher and then there's NSO, which I don't know, it, they popped up recently as well because they really, um, in like the, as part of like the COVID coverage of like tech solutions, they also, I think they lobbied a few European governments and be like, oh, give us all your data. We'll tell you everything about COVID. And <laughs> then when I read that, I was like, oh no. It's <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, an Israeli, they're, an Israeli, uh, they're an Israeli company and they've been, they've been very, very popular and they've been very, very widely used by different states. Um, to target um, activists, journalists. I think they were used in Mexico to target some activists that were uh, engaged in some like water related, um, like uh, water related uh, campaigns. Uh, so yeah, NSO says that their technology is only used to fight terrorism and what is it? There's only, always this holy trinity that surveillance related or that security companies or um, like surveillance related companies or also states bring forward. They're like, oh, we're looking at terrorists and pedophiles and organized crimes. That's like these three are always they are always they're always named it's if you start paying attention to it you're like okay we know these are bad in quotation marks but obviously these technologies are very much used against um members of civil society academia ngo social movements journalists activists um they do not follow the rule of law uh, it's yeah um and i think citizen lab has really really done an amazing job at tracking where the software has been used and like reverse engineering how it works and most of what we know about these companies and how they operate and where they've been where they've been operating and where they've been used kind of happens through citizen lab in cooperation with people 
on the ground who have like received suspicious emails and messages on their phones and will then get sometimes in touch with Citizen Lab. And um, yeah, so they're just in case someone's interested in, in that, in that stuff, you should, you should check out Citizen Lab. Um, yeah. And then, so one of the biggest customers of these uh, surveillance technologies, I, so I looked only at the Middle East and I especially focused on uh, Egypt, but also the UAE because uh, that's where I thought that dynamic was really interesting. Um, and I think now it's a little bit more apparent because obviously Israel and Saudi Arabia and the, the, the Gulf are really cozying up and they're making it more official now. But when I wrote the paper, uh, it was a little bit more hush hush because, you know, technically every, all Arab countries are still at war with Israel, even though, you know, a lot of countries are, except for uh, Egypt and Jordan who signed peace treaties. Okay. Yeah. So the relationship between the, the UAE and, and Israel was really interesting because it kind of revealed some regional uh, dynamics uh, where you can you can really trace the deep cooperation between between these countries. Even though outwardly they still kind of show some lip support to like yeah the Palestinian struggle, uh, but really they they're in like engaged in some very very deep cooperations um, with uh, with Israel and. Um, very often this is portrayed because, you know, they all have this common enemy, Iran and Hezbollah, and I'm using, I'm using yeah, quotation marks for a common enemy, um, because I feel like this is more um, like a part of like a long-standing dynamic where I think the U.S. is very actively trying to undermine the few, um, the few centers of power in the Middle East that aren't completely uh, aligned with US power. Uh, and I think that's why you can see how, you know, like the cooperation between Israel and the UAE and also Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Jordan, um, how that makes sense in a different way and not just, it's not just about Iran. Um, so yeah, so it's very interesting to see how much the NS, how much NSO software has been used by by the UAE, and especially because uh, the Israeli government has to kind of sign off any sale of NSO software to a foreign government. So you know that if they would have anything against uh, the software being used by the UAE, then it wouldn't be sold because they kind of have to say yes to it. And so there's this one case that is just really, really terrifying and strange. And um, yeah, so one of the activists who, through whom a lot of uh, information has been revealed about uh, surveillance common, uh, companies is Ahmed Mansour, and he's from the UAE, and he was excessively targeted with tools from the NSO group, the Gamma group, and hacking team. And um, yeah, he, I think he was like targeted with three separate like, zero-day exploits, which kind of would reportedly sell for like a million dollars. So there's really, really huge amounts of money thrown at getting into his phone and into his laptop. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy. And so this, this um, what's interesting about the dynamics uh, is that, so they're not, they're not only, 
And I have to like, as a precursor, say that the paper that I wrote was for an institute that looks at European security policy. So I had to make that connection with Europe and kind of argue why, look, this is also important for European states to care about. Um, even though I probably, if I wouldn't have written it for that institute, I'd probably reframe it a little bit differently of like why this matters. But yeah, sometimes you have to be crude and be like, yeah, this is why this matters for you, even though it also should matter in general. Um, yeah, so, and they've, they have targeted um, activists who are based in London, who are based in Europe, who are, um, and so it's not like <clears throat> these companies are, um, are selling technology that is like used on activists that are in the Middle East, but these companies, uh, but these states who then acquire the software, they will use it anywhere. Like they don't care if they're trying to get somebody and that person is in exile in London, they will use it. And then that's technically in European soil. So I was kind of trying to make that argument that, uh, you know, if this surveillance technology is sold, it's out there. And then, you know, it's really hard to, you can't, it's like the best step to curb this is to curb the sale of this surveillance uh, technology and to like really force encryption and not to undermine encryption like the European Union is trying to do at the moment because after the, after the uh, attacks in Vienna uh, that happened recently, um, the European Union reaction was like, ah, oh, well, we really need to stop encryption because this is how we could have prevented this, which is, it's not true. It just ending encryption just undermines security for everybody. And yeah, it's it's like that's like one of those false, false drama and arguments. It's the same as like, yeah, saying like this technology, we will only look at terrorists and we will only look at uh, pedophiles. It's always the same arguments that aren't that aren't true at all. And the NSO group stop me if I'm wrong, but weren't they involved in the hacking of the Khashoggi and also Jeff Bezos's phone? Um, yeah, so the Jeff Bezos one is a really interesting one. And uh, Jamal Khashoggi, yeah, he was also targeted with NSO uh, software um, before before he was murdered in, in, in Istanbul, um, which is also, like, it's a huge, yeah, I, 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 I honestly don't know why that didn't get picked up more because I feel like it's, it's such a, yeah, it's, it's so, yeah it's really horrible that that happened and that it's allowed to like continue to happen. So the Jeff Bezos story is a, is a little bit more uh, lighthearted. Um, and Jeff Bezos, so he made allegations that the Saudi government hacked his phone uh, and they were like serious enough, like the, the UN special rapporteur on extraditional uh, summary or arbitrary executions. Like she like referenced it in a statement and so wow. both the hacking team and NSO were like potential sources for the software. Um, so it's not 100% proven, but uh, there's this story where, so he revealed some of the texts that he uh, received from the Saudi side. And um, that, <laughs> so one of these, it's just such a bizarre, bizarre, bizarre story that I really don't know how to wrap my head around it. So I think Bezos was kind of trying to like get some pity out of this. Um, so apparently he was sent this meme um, and it's an image of a woman that, and he was sent these messages at the time he was going through a divorce. And he was sent this meme uh, but that kind of had a woman on it um, that kind of looked like his wife. And 
I think the meme said arguing with the woman is like reading through the terms of agreement for a software and in the end you just ignore and click agree or something horrible <laughs> like that oh I will God. send it to you afterwards it's just it's so bizarre and apparently you were sent this and by um, the Saudi government I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was uh, Mohammed bin Salman or like MBS, as he likes to be MBS. called. Oh my or, God. Or, yeah, I think that was allegedly <laughs> sent it to him. Um, because, I mean, just as a background, all the surveillance software, how it works is you have to kind of, you have to click on a link or you have to download a file. Um, and then that, by clicking on, usually it's like some suspicious, well, it's some suspicious email or it's an email that kind of looks like it comes from a friend or it comes from a, a source. So let's say they're trying to target somebody who works in human rights. Um, you'll get this email that looks like it's a, uh, it's like a, some information about some human rights violations. They're like, Oh my God, this happened in this country. Please look at this link. This is a video of what happened of like some, human rights violations being committed um but it looks slightly dodgy or it might be an email a fake email created by somebody you recently met uh and then their name you know they just make an email on google that kind of looks like that email and then they send you a link or they send you a file and if you click on that file it will install the software on your phone and then uh, they have access to everything so if you ever receive something <laughs> Don't click on the don't click on the attachments and don't click on the links. Um, yeah, so that's how they get it, and I think that's how Bezos was like. This is how he got hacked by these like links and attachments that 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 were sent to his to his WhatsApp, and then it's for it's to like spy on his phone. It's just it's very yeah. <laughs> interesting. That's so funny. One of the things that was really interesting, I did my master's research in Northern Ireland and one of the things on policing in Northern Ireland and one of the things that gets said about policing in Northern Ireland is that, um, or, or about general things in, in Northern Ireland is that like the British will like test out things um, in Northern mm -hmm. Ireland and then roll it out to the rest of the UK. Um, and that's sort of something like you brought up before is and another kind of like argument for like why quote unquote we should care is because like things like surveillance technology gets like tested out in like what we might define as like low rights environments um but then it just becomes quite widespread um so like is going forward like how 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 do we think of this dynamic to me it's it's very interesting how I mean, so in my research, I'm trying to kind of not focus or refocus the EU and the US in, in these discussions and framings, because obviously there is already a lot of focus on that. Like, even if you like go into any discussion, they're like, oh, this is technology and these are the problems. I'm like, nope, these are the problems in the US and technology. Like, all, for example, like all this stuff about disinformation that now everybody's looking at disinformation. I'm like, great but this is really like and i'm not saying it's not a problem but i'm saying like you know like there is a directionality like where this comes from and then where we now have to talk about this as a problem um so what i'm interested in in this regard is kind of to to think about this dynamic of how 
technologies and methods of control or extraction, how, where they come from and how they function. And I think it's important to understand that beyond just convincing Europeans or US citizens, like why they should care as well, because it's just, that's just how these things function. And if we don't understand them in the right context, we don't know how to like dismantle or undermine them. Um, and there's a few, there's a few things um, that are, that are important in this. And like, so, I mean, there is a very long and terrible history of how new technologies or procedures having, or having been tested on extremely marginalized people and then like, expanded further. And this is not just about um, like technologies of control, but also medicine. For example, if we think of uh, Harriet Washington's book on medical apartheid, um, a lot of gynecologies practices, tools, surgeries, they were tested on women who were enslaved in the US and then presented in medical journals. So they were they were used as like to like test out new, you know, procedures and, and stuff like that. So that's one part of it. And then a lot of the fundamental tools for surveillance, such as taking census, um, making maps, fingerprinting, profiling, they were developed and redefined during colonial settings. And that's really important to know that. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I think it's really important to know that. Um, Simone Brown also has a really, really amazing book on how a lot of surveillance technologies hark back to the times of slavery. Um, and she also argues that a lot of theories about surveillance are blind to thinking about race. And that's really crucial to how these technologies function. I mean, also about how we think about algorithmic bias, how I mean, there it's, it's a bit more evident, but it's, it's um, yeah, so I think these are, these are really, really crucial. And then another aspect of this is um, how class functions this, because we have these dynamics of like global dynamics of um, how some surveillance technologies are tested out. Um, I think it was uh, the chips, you know, like kind of like that can scan everything that's on your phone in protest settings. And they've been used in the Black Lives Matter protests uh, recently so that people, you can get a lot of information of like who's been attending the protests and like all of that stuff. And they were developed and tested out in Yemen and then later on applied mm -hmm. uh, in the US. So there is this dynamic and the global, like global dynamics. But then you also have internal dynamics where um, and not that these, um, these differences are that clear cut, but there's also the class aspect. And this is something Virginia Eubanks talks about in her book, Automating Inequality, which is also excellent. Um, and she kind of talks about how a lot of technology was tested on the poor and how accessing services is predicated on you giving up a lot of private information because the state wants to determine whether you're quote unquote worthy of receiving these services and and how that invites a lot of a lot of surveillance and a lot of control and how then they get expanded into further uh, further into society and there's a really scary example about because um, one of the groups who this happens to a lot are obviously international asylum seekers and refugees and for example in Jordan um, people get um, cash by having their iris scanned at the bank so that the UNHCR 
who we think of as a really nice organization. They're like, oh, UNHCR, they're trying to like help people. But in some contexts, they kind of function as the um, interior ministry because they decide who gets asylum and who doesn't get asylum. So they have a very complicated care and control function. And um, well, they, they used to kind of take people's fingerprints, but then people would to like trace and make sure you can really trace them. Um, uh, when they move around, when they enter into Europe, because, you know, um, how, how obsessed Europe is with closing its borders. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, and so they then started to taking iris scans because it, you know, uh, you can't really, uh, you can't really remove your eyes. So, which is horrible. And, um, yeah, in Jordan, they're using it now to kind of hash out, hand out cash assistance um and like to me that's a really scary example of like new technologies being tested out at very very vulnerable populations and yeah you don't know where that's going to yeah. be applied to afterwards or it's just the thought that these things happen and yeah so i feel like that's that's kind of why i i feel like it's really important to understand understand these dynamics and to like continuously think about them while while we consider how surveillance works. Thank you so much again to Stephanie Felsberger for coming on and talking with us. All of the links that Stephanie mentioned will be available in our show's show notes. We also send out a weekly newsletter with a roundup of all of the articles and books mentioned in this podcast. The link to subscribe is below. To continue the conversation about how to avoid descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm.